Hey, g'day there, fellow humans. Mark Labusque here. Just today's episode of the Simply Practically Human podcast, joined by a couple of very, very inspiring human beings from the US, Brian P. Moran and Michael M. Lennington, who have written a book. I've written a few books, actually. One that's got the number 12 in it um, on a whole lot of things, the, the 12-week year is a, is a best-selling book. But their latest book is called Uncommon Accountability. And as soon as I saw that title, I was absolutely curious to speak to these fellas. The episode is amazing. They are revolutionizing what accountability is about with a very, very simple approach to it. So have a listen, take some notes. This is a ripper. You're going to get a big change in mindset here on what accountability is. And we'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Today, I'm a little bit uncomfortable because I think it's the first time I've been, and I say literally surrounded on my Zoom screen by two incredible human beings from the US, uh, Brian P. Moran, um, or um, His Excellency, as he likes to be called, and Michael <laughs> M. Lennington. Um, gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Yeah, great to be with you. Great to be here. We're going to get into a great topic today, accountability, and I think it's become a bit of a buzzword in the corporate world, and I and also think there's so many different views on what accountability is. Before we go there, I always like to start with my guests to chat a little bit about them as the human being and sort of what got them into the work that they do. So a little bit of your backstories. Um, Brian, if you wouldn't mind, perhaps a, a bit of a backstory on, on Brian Moran. Yeah, happy to. I, I was uh, paying my way through college working UPS. So I was working the reload in the evening. It's a great job, great money, and uh, you know, let me go to school all day long and uh, going to Michigan State University. Well, they offered me a promotion to supervise that, but I was getting a degree in physiology, going to be a strength coach. And I thought, you know, I don't want to do that. But then I thought about it. Hey, you know, it's an opportunity. Who knows? A little more money, a little less effort, you know, whatever. So I took it, ended up working for a guy that was very much a coach. And this was back a thousand years ago before anyone thought of a manager as a coach. And so I learned a ton from the guy, left Michigan, moved to Southern California, got in with PepsiCo, and worked for a really interesting uh, regional VP there. And so between the combination of those two really switched me on to the whole notion of leadership and management and finished my degree in, in business as opposed to physiology and went a completely different route. Got in with PepsiCo, as I said, worked for them, got promoted a couple of times, ultimately ended up at a consulting firm where Michael and I met, yeah. a mid-sized consulting group that did a lot of performance improvement. Um, with large companies, one of the pioneers in recognizing the impact culture has on performance. So it was a great experience. And then one of the clients offered me a position as vice president of sales, took that, didn't work out and ended up doing my own thing. So I own a number of different businesses, but created a startup in health services called BioCare, where we do onsite medical surveillance. And then eventually came back around to what I think I do best, which is training, coaching, consulting. And, and, uh, Michael and I got a chance to partner some point in that process there. I love it. UPS. So uh, I always find it interesting when people share their story. I used to work for a logistics company as well as a young fellow called TNT, which was loading planes and driving trucks and doing all of those sorts of things as well and and started my life as a phys ed, physical education teacher. So mm. some, some similarities there. Mate, thanks for sharing. Yeah. And Michael, for, for yourself? 
So both Brian and I were born and raised in Michigan in the States. And I grew up in Northern Michigan, which is, I, most people probably don't know where that's at, what it looks like in your neck of the woods, but it's a beautiful part of the world. Just gorgeous. Un- unfortunately, there were no jobs. So um, once I got out of uh, high school, I, I went to school at Michigan State. I got a degree in fisheries and wildlife management, which meant that I was immediately went to banking and got a job in banking. And then I got to be part of the consulting group in, inside the bank. And I really enjoyed consulting quite a bit. And so went back and got a, a real degree, got my MBA. And then um, went out and I've been in consulting ever since. It's, I've been consulting, you know, pretty much nonstop, you know, for almost 40 years. And uh, Brian and I met a long time ago uh, in, the, in a former consulting company that he mentioned. And in spite of that, we decided to rejoin uh, about 20 <laughs> years ago. And uh, we really, we really focused on, uh, in the early days, when Brian started the company, I joined him shortly thereafter, but we, we as a company started pretty early on working with our clients and thought we had to come in with good ideas and strategies and, and, you know, breakthrough processes and stuff. But we realized pretty quickly that most of our clients already had lots of great ideas. What they struggled with though was, was taking those ideas and actually making them pay off and yeah. implementing them and getting full value from them. So we decided to focus on that part of the consulting business, helping our clients to execute. Uh, we wrote a book a long time ago, I think it was a 2002, to 2003, where we describe what we did and being the marketing geniuses that we were, we called it periodization, which a lot of people thought was a gum disease, but in, in <laughs> fact, is an exercise routine for um, athletes who have pretty much competed in endurance sports. And so it was all based upon this short cycle um, training regimen where you'd, you'd train one thing for you know four to six weeks, and then you move to the next skill in four to six weeks. And so we thought that's really powerful, especially since a lot of our clients were struggling to, to execute consistently across the year. We wanted them to execute in shorter cycles rather than just yep. wait till the end of the year to push, they spread their energy across the year. So we, we wrote the book to ha- kind of help deal with that issue. And that book and its later uh, book called The 12-Week Year, we figured out we should call it what it was eventually. Um, and then we were published by Wiley. And uh, that really fed most of our businesses. And we, we've been consulting and training and, and coaching on the 12-Week Year for about 20 years now. And uh, which, by the way, was one of the foundational principles was accountability, which led to this great book. I'm interested because there was a little bit of banter between you two as we kicked <laughs> off, which is that tells me straight away there's there's a bit of magic here. What is it that really works between you two humans that makes you two work so well together? I'll defer to you on that one, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think I think we have some similarities, but we're dissimilar in some ways as well. And and the dissimilarities tend to work really well together. We're really great at. Uh, creating content and really thinking through concepts. And so we play off one another. We're not afraid to argue. We're like brothers in that way and no one holds a grudge and, and it just, it it seems to work out really well. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a process of how we write together and how we create together. And it just, it isn't anything we were all that intentional about building. It just kind of came organically, which is probably the way it happens best. And I mean, I think I can't speak for him, but I, I really respect Mike and, and and appreciate him as a friend. So I think that goes a long way as well. It's it's beyond just a, a working relationship, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I hate to say this, but I've probably known you longer than I've known anybody else in my life other than than my wife. So and my kids, of course. <laughs> yeah. I love that idea of how it's sort of been, it's grown organically, because I think sometimes, particularly in relationships, we try and force things. Hey, um, accountability. So this new book, Uncommon Accountability. When, when um, I got the the email out to say, "Hey, you need to speak to these two humans," I was, and, and I saw that topic, I went, "You beauty," because I think it's a word that is thrown around that much with so many different sort of ideas about what it means. In fact, just yesterday, talking to a CEO about 
he wants to do some work to get people to understand what accountability is. And, and I think when I read your work, perhaps they're coming from a very directive approach to accountability rather than what you gentlemen are talking about. So let's start with what is accountability? So if, if you can explain, it's a big word and there's lots of different ideas about it, but who wants to sort of have the first crack at the nut on your thoughts on what accountability is? Yeah, so our experience with it is most people experience it as negative consequences. And yep. when you talk to people about it, that's typically where they go because that's the way it's been experienced. That's the way they've, if they're in leadership, that's what they've been taught to do with people. And so, you know, you hear that word in society, it's always affiliated with someone doing something bad and and then someone in authority coming out and creating some sort of negative consequence, whether that be fines or imprisonment or something like that. And so, so that tends to be the prevailing view of it. And uh, and yet, I think intuitively, as Michael and I feel like that people know that to be successful, you got to be accountable. So, you know, we started to deal with that disconnect years ago, trying to figure out, okay, that can't be what accountability is. If if we feel like it's something we need to be successful, then then what is this whole negative consequence thing that goes along with it? And and through our our research and our experience, the problem is that negative consequences and accountability are synonymous, and they're not. Yep. They're very very different. And so we talk about accountability as ownership. Yes. And at the heart of that is free will choices. It's recognition that you always have choice and then taking ownership of those choices. And, and so when you start to begin to understand accountability in that light, it changes everything. It changes it for the individual. It certainly changes it for a leader and for groups and, and folks like that. Michael, I, I'm sure you have some things to add to that. I do agree with you because we wrote a book together, so it's going to be pretty similar, but, but um, at least I, I hope we agree. I think inherent in the in the way that most people see accountability is just this belief that people don't naturally want to do the right thing, that without some sort of external coercion, you're not going to get people to do the things that are going to be good for them and good for the company. And so as a result of that, um, management has to take on their shoulders this process of applying consequences to shape behavior, which really kind of doesn't allow people to kind of take ownership themselves. And it kind of creates the exact opposite of what leadership wants, which is ownership and, and engagement and high performance. And it kind of creates you know, it does improve performance. The consequences improve performance, but they don't really get at what people are capable of. And that's really why we wrote the book. There's this misguided view of what accountability is. There's the online dictionary, Webster's um, online dictionary. And I went there to look at the definition of accountability when we first started writing the book. And there were four definitions or four examples of the meaning of the word accountability. All four of them were negative. Somebody didn't yep. do something well or something broke down. And, and three of them were, were the application of somebody with organizational power um, applying penalties to someone with less power as if they almost intended to do this thing, right? So it, it really was an unhealthy I, I view of what accountability is, but I think it's emblematic of how a lot of people think about it. Yeah, interesting. Reading a little bit through your book, the other thing that comes to mind for me is the origins of this I have to view of accountability. And um, in my work, I talk about the impacts of the Industrial Revolution and that, you know, for the last 105 years, it's like humans as outputs of labour or units of labour, and then the, the man or whoever it would have been back then, do this, do that, sort of penalising people and very much about technical competence. And I'm interested and curious in your thoughts on the origins of this way of accountability of I have to. Did they go back that far, do you think? I, you know, I think it probably goes back as long as we've been around, to be yep. honest with you. 
right? The, anything we don't like to do or, or feel like we're, we shouldn't have to do, there's this notion, well, I have to do it. And we, we, we sort of discount the, the realization that it's still a choice, right? You always have a choice. There isn't really anything you have to do. And you may choose to do it for various reasons, but you're still choosing to do it. And so, but when we default to that have to, I mean, we really give away our power to recognize that, you know, it is a choice I'm making and I, I could just as easily make a different choice. So oftentimes we become victim to the circumstances and the people around us, which is a completely helpless mindset, yep. right? It's one where I feel like everything's happening to me. And although I don't, the fact is I don't control the circumstances, but I do control how I respond. And, and the victim mindset is one where I feel like I don't, I have no choice and it's just happening to me and, and it easily becomes a pity party and there's nothing productive that comes out of that. But I don't know. I, I got to believe that's been around probably first surfaced with Adam in the garden. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, any thoughts around that one? I don't know when it began because I wasn't around, but I do know that that industrial management style is one that has been effective for a long time in getting a certain level of results. And I, and I definitely think that this holding people accountable um, has been part of that. I don't think that, that they're separable, actually. Geez, we're good at playing the victim. I, I think of these mythical organizational creatures I hear I've called them and they. Yeah. And only two weeks ago, I was with a group and we were doing some pretty, the room was getting warm. And because I called it out, I said, I'm, I'm sniffing victimhood right now and I don't like the stench of it. So let's talk about that, people, because <laughs> there was a lot of the them and they going on. And I love how you throw choice in there as well. Victimhood or being the victim. Why is that such a popular card for human beings to to play, particularly, well, I think in, in all parts of our lives, but particularly in an organizational context? Well, one level, it absolves me from taking responsibility for anything that's not going well. Yep. So there's a whole host of benefits that go with being the victim from I don't have to change, right? If it's your fault, not mine, Mark, then I don't have to change. Or if it's someone else's fault, right? There's There's no change for me. There's no effort I need to extend. I don't need to take a hard look at myself. In addition to that, oftentimes, if I'm good at telling my victim story, I get some sympathy, I get some pity, might even get some free beer or pizza with it, you know, that kind of thing. So <laughs> I think there's a lot, a lot of benefits that go along with it, not to mention right now, society really reinforces it and rewards it. Yeah. We're all a victim to the circumstances versus recognizing, hey, we all, we all are in different circumstances, but let's make the, the best choices we can in those to live the best life we can. And uh, instead of looking at, well, I wish I had what Mark had. He had advantages over me starting out. Okay, well, so what? You know, it, yep. it is what it is. It's all about what you do with your situation. And so I just think there are quite a significant list of benefits that come along with, with being the victim. And one of them is just it's easy. <laughs> it's just really mm. easy to do. Even for the most accountable people, it's easy to slide into it from time to time. Yeah, look, we're good at taking the easy path. Mike, your thoughts on victimhood? I think that that it, you protect your ego to some degree if if it's somebody else's fault or some external event occurred and, and you're kind of innocent of the consequences of the actions that you took. So I think that really uh, all the things that Brian listed are, are real, and I think be, because victimhood is so popular, there has to be a lot of payoffs for folks, and and I think they're immediate. You know, you get them right now. Protect your ego right now. You avoid the work right now. Um, somebody else gets punished right now, and so it's certainly alluring. Yeah, I love the work of, and I'm a big fan of the adaptive leadership framework, Heifetz and Linsky, and and they talk about the skillful art of work avoidance. And I think victimhood <laughs> plays right into 
that space. The other thing that becomes a bit of a, a, a mic drop moment in the room when you say to people, you are them and they. Mm-hmm. Like, you're it. And they're like, oh, no, that's them. Well, they're doing it. And, and it's like, no, no, you're, you are them and you have a part in the mess. And people don't particularly like it when they, when they hear those words. So uncommon accountability, this whole concept of moving from like I have to to I choose to, taking responsibility as leadership and management, giving people the opportunity to do what they're capable of doing. As I was reading again through some of your work, the other word that was coming to mind for me was trust and what the what's the link between trust and this uncommon accountability? Because I, I, my sense for, for my work is trust is the is a big foundation in allowing things to work, particularly if you're going to give people a chance to do things, they want to know you've got their back. What, what are your thoughts around trust in this? Trust is absolutely critical for effective ap- application of real accountability because if someone is going to take ownership of a mistake, they can learn from that, they can, they can avoid it in the future, and they, and they, they accept that responsibility. Um, that's really the first step towards getting better, right? But if, but if in acknowledging your own culpability in something, or your own responsibility for something that happened. Um, if you get punished in that, right? If you get beaten up for that, or if there's any kind of negative consequence that arises from being honest about something that happened that you contributed to, you're going to never see that again. So I think I think trust that you're safe, trust that you can, in the process of trying to create good results, you can learn, you can take the action that appears to be the right action. And, and if it doesn't work, you're not going to get a, a consequence as if you intended it not to work, you know, because yeah. I think that'll stifle it fast. You know, that, that's one of the challenges with the traditional view of accountability is that it completely undermines trust. So organizations yeah. spend a lot of time, energy, bringing consultants, mm-hmm. do all kinds of training on building trust, and then they hold their team accountable, which means they, they create these negative consequences when they don't perform, which just undermines all the work they just did around trust. And they'll, they'll, from our experience, they'll probably never get to where they want to get to at the trust level with the prevailing notion of accountability. There's consequences in the notion of holding your team accountable. The other thing that comes to mind for me there too is, I hear this one a lot, we're going to give ownership to our people. You own it now, you know, sales, operations, whatever it is, you own the revenue, you own the cost and all these sorts of things. And then we're caught up in this other organizational phenomenon called, I can't let go. The challenge between me, the leader or manager saying, you're now accountable, Mike, but me continuing to what I call ride in on my white steed and save the day. What are your thoughts around how do, how do you help managers and leaders to, to start to let go? Because I think this is a really important point. The challenge there in my mind is that when they tell you, okay, you're now accountable for it, it really means you're also going to get beat if it doesn't go well. I yep. mean, that's a big piece of them delegating accountability is delegating blame. And so in an organization where they hold people accountable, you know, anytime you delegate anything, it comes with the potential of the delegation of blame. And so it's really difficult to get people to embrace that and really take ownership of it. You may, you may have given it to me, but you know, until I take ownership of it, it's not mine. Yep. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's one of the challenges we have in organizations so that they kind of just get bounced around and then y- you've put it on my plate. I'm going to try and put it on someone else's because if it doesn't go well, I know what's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Consequences flow downhill, right? So if I'm a leader, not only does the team have to trust me, but I have to trust my team. And there may be some risk in it for me. Trust comes with some risk. And if I'm part of an organization that that is 
built around this holding people accountable concept, then my leaders will hold me accountable, which means get some negative consequences if my team fails. So I've trusted my team, but I'm, I'm my next on the line as well. And so I think some of that, that process of trust is you know, hard to do because consequences, if, if I'm accountable for some numbers and I'm managed by consequences, I can get some pretty fast responses by threatening some negative consequences or offering some positive consequences. People will shift their behavior. And I know that works and it works pretty quick. So it's really tempting not to give that up. And it, there's some real downsides with it, but those downsides you pay for later. Right now in the moment, I can get my team to do something pretty quick, pretty fast if, if I use consequences. Yeah. And I think we're also caught up in that last week's results and the month's results. And it's all so quick these days. And, you know, we time's a very important thing that we have, an important commodity. But the thing is, I think we're trying to do things too quickly. And one of the ways that we do that is we we, we threaten people. We literally mm-hmm. threaten people. If you don't hit your numbers, then you'll be on a, they call it a, you know, a PIP in Australia, performance improvement plan. And right. I just think human beings shrink really quickly. And, and this sort of brings me to this I love this idea of holding others capable because what I know in my work, and I keep saying this to people, like, you don't need me. Now, I, I, do, I do want to feed my family, by the way, but you actually don't need me as much as you think you do when you're closer to breaking through your issues than you know because you're far more capable than you understand at the moment. So this idea of hold others capable, how did that come up as a concept for you? And could you share a little bit about that versus the whole idea of holding people to consequence? Well, you know, we saw that, that the whole notion of holding someone accountable sounded great, but, you know, the practice of that was creating a negative consequence for people when they don't do what they're supposed to do, either behavioral-wise or outcome-wise. And so we saw that that didn't work, and it goes back to the misunderstanding of what accountability is and you know, this misunderstanding that you can force someone to do something because you really can't. I mean, you might create as a leader, you might create a consequence that's as tasteful enough that they choose to do it, but that's where you get minimum performance and you get a lot of collateral damage, everything from passive resistance, that right sabotage. And so you've got that dynamic going on in every organization that's trying to hold people accountable. And, and so as we were working with the concept, we knew there was a better way. We didn't know quite how to speak to it. And then we came across the, this notion of let's hold them capable, and which is a different mindset, right? And it's a different practice. Now, some of the people hear that initial and they go, well, that, that's just semantics. You're talking the same thing. We're not. It's subtly yet profoundly different in that when we talk about holding someone accountable, it's really about confronting with consequences. Yeah. We talk about holding someone capable, it's confronting with their freedoms, yeah. their freedom of choice. And the natural consequence of those choices. And what happens in that, Mark, is, you know, it changes the conversation, it changes the relationship, it changes the outcomes, it changes the culture. Because we're not trying to manipulate or force someone to do something. We're setting it out in front of them. And they could just as easily choose to work somewhere else. Doesn't make them a bad person, as we like to talk about, makes them a bad fit. Typically, when people confronted with choice, there's the room now for them to own it. When you're confronted with consequences, you're immediately put on your heels. Typically, what happens is you start to create excuses and shift blame. And it's just the, as Michael already talked about, it's kind of the opposite of what the leader's trying to do. And so the hold them capable really came out of this notion that, look, we've got to, as a leader, as a parent even, right, I've got to interact with my people differently if I want anything to change. It's it's always leader-led. And so how does that look then? If we're not going to confront them with consequences, we can't, it can't be passive. 
It can't be that we don't confront the breakdowns. How do we confront the breakdowns? We confront them with choice and freedoms. When we talk about holding people capable, it, it, it is not, as Brian says, it's not passive. We expect high standards. The, the high standards are definitely part of holding someone capable. We empower people and we coach them, right? So it's not this punitive consequence dealer relationship. It's a coaching relationship based upon high standards that, that are not adjusted, they're expected, and empowerment to do the things it takes to make those high standards real. And that's very powerful. And it's very, it's, as Brian says, very confronted, but not in a damaging way, but it's challenging people what, what they're capable of. Brian, there was something you said then that triggered, not the words weren't, it was about the the context of the situation. So my corporate bullshit detector went off in a big way. And it was when you said something about, you said hold holding others capable and then people resist that. Oh, they're just words. They're just semantics. That's the first step, I think, in avoiding this really important work is we're very good in organisational life to say, if there's a new concept or a new idea, it's like, oh, they're just words and it can't, well, won't work and these sorts of things. I hear it a lot with my human work. People say, what, are you going to hug them and sing Kumbaya to them? And I'm like, maybe, maybe I won't, maybe I will. But how do you overcome, because you, you and I love in the, you've got like real life examples. That's so important. The examples of how this, this uncommon accountability works. What's the first step in getting through that resistance for managers and leaders who are like, yeah, that's just a new, you know, management leadership consultant concept. How do you break that down? Yeah, I think we learned a long time ago, you can't help anyone go where they don't want to go. <laughs> nice. And so if you've got a leader that's stuck, they're stuck. You, you know, they yeah. may come around later, but but I think they, we've all experienced accountability as the negative consequence. So the, the natural thing is to talk to me about the last time someone tried to hold you accountable and and what's your natural tendency? Because it always is to resist and push back and make excuses and shift blame. And so do you think your people are doing the same? You know, what makes your people any different? Do you think you think you're getting the best performance out of people when you do that? And and the fact of the matter is, is no one's ever been taught a different way of doing it. Yep. It's sort of like when we came out with the 12-week year, we talked about getting out of the 12-month cycle, the annual cycle, and no one had ever questioned that. It's the same thing with accountability. No one's ever said, hey, there's a different way of doing this. There's a better way of doing this than trying to hold your team accountable. What happens is, is, is you go into all this training on how to hold your team accountable. And if you're someone who spits in their face, then you move more to the right. If you're someone who's maybe Pamby, you move more to the left, but you're on this flawed platform. And, yeah. and so really helping people realize how you think about that affects the entire team and, you know, how you engage your team and what, what happens with them. Because, Behavioral science has shown that you'll never get discretionary effort with negative consequences. No. And you've got leaders using negative consequences looking for positive behavior. There's a total disconnect there. And, and you might get it occasionally, but man, oh man, you really got to go after people. And then you people become accustomed to it. So now you got to turn the volume up on it. And now I haven't met many people that look forward to going in and chewing on people every day, right? And, no. and so we're kind of like, look, what you're currently doing, how's it working? And just try it. Try this for six weeks, 12 weeks, and just see what happens. Try it in one relationship. We had we had one gentleman, I think we talked about him in the book, Phil, who was kind of in that situation. He had this guy and he was like, the guy was underperforming. He tried to hold him accountable. He'd been doing that. And he said, what have I got to lose? And he went back and changed the conversation and it created a completely different result. Mm. And, and so our point of view is, look, let's let's try it. But go back to your experience with it. You know, we've all been held accountable. And if if you're any good at all, you resent it. 
you absolutely resent it. My sense is it starts with self. And I think most of the work of leadership starts with self. It's like, how was it for you when you were held accountable? And then what if you, I don't call it an experiment, what if you experimented with one person? That This idea that you don't have to try and throw the blanket over everyone straight away because I think that would be overwhelming and somewhat frightening for someone who's very much into the old style of, of accountability. Mike, did you have any thoughts on that one at all? Or Well, I think, I think one of the ways to get leaders to shift is to really help them understand what the benefits are of having a culture of, of ownership and accountability. I mean, all of us have seen teams that are just high-performing teams where they work together, they solve problems together, there's, there's blurring of roles because they're helping each other out. And those high-performing teams are very unlike the teams that are being held accountable by their boss because you just can't get there um, from here, if you're using consequences as your as your primary leadership tool, and you know, I think one of the things that that we really encourage people to do, as Brian says, is to try it. And we've all had examples of working with our clients where, you know, I worked with this one guy for over a year, and a pretty sharp guy, and he he'd been holding his team accountable. Um, and he was tied to his team; he couldn't leave because when he wasn't, the the performance would drop. And he wanted to build this this other part of his business, but he just didn't have time to do it because he was so close to managing his team. And we we really just focused on his team. And he had to he had to let some people go, and he treated them differently. He set goals for them. He helped them solve their own problems, and, and he set goals with them, not for them. Helped them solve their own problems. Anyway, long story short, we really applied this concept in his business. And 12 months later, um, he hired somebody They came in, started working for him. Two weeks later, they came into his office and said, your team doesn't like me. Um, and he said, well, no, it's not that they don't like you. It's just that you're getting in the way of them hitting their goals and they're not going to let you do that. So yeah. what he had done is he created this team that was self-reinforcing of the standards and the, and the effort, and they rejected low performers. And that's a culture of accountability. The, the boss didn't even have to step in. In fact, he's now building that external business. He's been doing it for several years. And that's the power if you're willing to shift your style from applying consequences to really challenging the team with what they're capable of and, and ownership. And I think it's, again, it's a great thing of letting go and allowing the people to do what they're capable of. And that's risky because mm-hmm. we usually get rewarded by being very accountable ourselves to the risks that are going to come our way so we perform well. And, and that's the way we've sort of got through the system. You talk in your book about creating accountability systems for organisations. And, and I, I have a curiosity on that, and I'm sure the listeners do, because they'll be like, what is, what's an accountability system and how can that benefit me as a as a manager as a leader so what are accountability systems is there some things you can share there with the listeners well the systems themselves i think in general are neutral they're they don't do one thing or the other it's what you do with the systems that kind of creates either a lack of accountability or accountable system um, because a lot of times accountability systems are tools that measure people's activity they, they measure maybe even some some output and so you're, you're really able to see um, at a numerical level anyway, what people are doing. And that gives you better information to go and apply negative consequences that that's what you want to do, right? So typically people update their numbers and then you have meetings with them. And, and if they're good numbers, they get praise. If they're bad numbers, they get challenged and, and probably some negative consequences applied. So the system itself, though, is just a measurement system. And when you're holding people capable, measurement's critical for that, but it's not critical to, to find ways to hammer people with. It's what it's for ultimately is to identify where the breakdowns are, I'll point you where the breakdowns are. And then you have conversations, question-based conversations about what causes this performance level, what could we do differently, and what do you want to try? So it becomes less of a of a hammering on the past, which is what they can use those systems for, or it becomes a pathway to a better future. And so I think I think when you hold people capable, you're really looking at 
what's next, what's coming up, what's, what are we going to do better na- next week, next year? Whereas when you're looking at a accountability system from, from a negative sense of, of applying consequences, then you're looking at the past yes. and you're trying to divvy out consequences based upon something that just happened or happened a while ago. Yeah. You, you can't build a system with the wrong mindset. And so, you know, it's first shifting that mindset about what accountability is and then aligning the actions with it uh, and then being consistent with it. That's what any system is, mm. right? But we work in a lot of industries where they talk about measurement as accountability because they use it to trigger negative consequences. Yeah. And Mike's pointing out measurement is just feedback. Yeah. What we do with it is what matters. But I do think there are some underlying structures that need to be in place if you're going to hold people capable. And it it starts with knowing what they want, uh, which is a vision question. Uh, the second thing is, from a behavioral planning standpoint, what matters most? And, and mm-hmm. most plans are conceptual. This is a whole nother topic here, but people are really reluctant to take ownership of things that are vague. And so when, when plans are conceptual, like most plans are, that whole notion of ownership breaks down. So you need You need to know what they want. You need to be very clear on expectations at the vision, at the goal, most importantly, at the behavioral level. We need to know whether or not they're doing it. There's got to be evidence of whether or not it's working. So there's some pieces that need to be in place to really hold people capable. But first and foremost, I don't want to make it sound complicated. First and foremost, it starts with the mindset of the leader. Yeah. Looking backwards, and looking forwards, I really like that because I know I've sat in lots of rooms and I've actually been that person that's like, the results are terrible. We look backwards, what are the consequences going to be now? But when the results are good, we don't really look. We just, let's just keep going the way the way that we do things. I find it fascinating that we spend so much time in what I call our bad news filing cabinets. <laughs> and when the good news turns up, we tend not to put that in the good news one. We just soldier on. Uh, and away we go with the things that we do. The idea of sitting with the vagueness and the not knowing, something else that comes to mind for me, I, I have these five questions I, I started using with my very last team about eight, nine, ten years ago. And, and my second question was, because you've talked about expectations, which I love, my second question is, what's your work style preference? The question that I asked of my team members to tell me when you can do your very best work and really tap into your potential What's it like? And some would say, give me a little direction, then let me be. Some would say to me, I need you to come and literally rub my tummy every day so to see my <laughs> tail wag because I need affirmation and these sorts of things. How important is it in this work that you're doing that managers and leaders are really clear on an individual's very unique work style preferences? I, you know, I think that's helpful. And I think you know, with this approach, you're going to know your people better anyways because you're working with them. You're not yeah. doing it to them, which is a big difference. And um, the one you have to, to worry about is the person that says, well, I need you to hold me accountable, <laughs> right? Because they're trying to shift the burden to you. And too many managers are like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm all in on that. And so those are the folks you got to be aware of. Yep. The other styles, you, you, know, you learn to flex and you learn to provide them what they need to, to thrive. But it's, it's amazing what happens though when when you start to engage people differently, uh, I mean, they, they step up and you'll see the natural tendencies they have. And some of those things that, you know, might be required to get them to perform otherwise isn't even necessary now because they're thriving. They're, you know, when someone takes ownership, it's a different deal. Yeah. I mean, they, they go above and beyond. They do whatever it takes. They're coming to you with solutions and, and suggestions and things like that versus when they see you coming, they, they run and hide. I mean, it's completely different. 
Uh, so I guess you talked before about discretionary effort. That's that sort of secret source that everyone's after. But that that can't happen until you create those that environment that you were you were just talking about there. I call this a simply practically human podcast for a reason. I have a bit of a view that like most things are pretty simple and, and and we can put a practical lens over them. We are humans, so complicated and complexity comes into it as well. But I have a view through my experience that we spend a lot of time chasing the complex and the complicated when the the answers are, are, are there in front of us in a, perhaps in a simple way that if we practically apply what we know as humans, we can get there. I'm interested in both your thoughts around if you think this, that I do, that we that humans are warmed by the flame of complexity and complicated versus going towards simple and practical, what do you think drives people to do that if you do? One of the most common feedback that we get about our, our first book, The 12-Week Year, was I know all that stuff. And because it, in the 12-week year anyway, the disciplines are hard to argue with. I mean, they're foundational pieces. Everybody knows that stuff, but not everybody fully engages with it. Not everybody engages with it at all, actually. So really, it's, I think simple is best because as soon as you get complexity on top of change, you're really going to struggle to make something different happen. So, so simple is always better, in my opinion. As simple as you can make it, still be functional. But Michael and I are always looking for the simple on the other side of complex. Not simplistic, because that doesn't work. But yeah. Too often we have a tendency to complicate the heck out of it. And sometimes that's to justify my position. Sometimes it's to satisfy my intellect or whatever it is. But I, I think it's always a struggle to find the simple on the other side of complex. But when you do, it, it is so much easier. And there's there's a cadence and there's a flow to how it works. And, and people respond to that. Yeah. Occam's razor. Yeah. Um I hear that quite a bit, that we know all that. I, just last week, luckily for the first time in generally two years, I was back in, in a physical room with some clients and about a day and a half into the two days, and it was great that he said it because he felt safe enough. He's like, hey, I don't even know why I'm here. And I'm like, why is that? And he goes, because I know all this stuff. It's just common sense. And I'm like, cool. Why don't you apply it? Ah, <laughs> oh, because there's all of this other stuff that's going on in, in the world. But we, we, we do know uh, that... People move away from it. I just had a guest on on yesterday who said, we love to hide behind complexity. We hide down the light, the dark laneways with complexity because it keeps us safe. All righty. I'm conscious of our time and I'm also conscious of, I've got five dogs here and my wife's taken one of them for a walk and she'll be back shortly and there will be absolute pandemonium going on here in the background. I'd love to know more about where do we find out more about the great work that you do where we get the books is it with on your website how do people connect with you get in touch with you what's the best way yeah the book i mean just go through your favorite bookseller whether it's amazon barnes and noble or whatever it is you can also visit uncommonaccountability.com yep and find some stuff there there's some other stuff at 12weekyear.com the number 12weekyear.com and those are probably the easiest ways to find us and and our work Excellent. Look, gents, I thank you very much for nothing sent to you beforehand. We've had a conversation, as I said. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it. I've learned some things. The beauty of podcasting is it's like my learning laboratory, so I've learned some more today. So good to have you on and um, hope to catch up with you again in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Appreciate your time. I always love it when you're talking to human beings. And mind you, this was a non-scripted at all. It was literally nothing sent across to Brian and Mike beforehand. And they just know their stuff so well. It's just, what I love is how simple and how easy it is to make sense of the concept of uncommon accountability. Because 
common accountability is, it's as I said, it's been around since Adam. And uh, love the conversations around victim and victimhood and the pity party, that measurement is feedback. The idea of working with and not to or at people, I think is really important. That this work, if you're going to embrace this sort of work as a manager or in leadership, is that it starts with yourself. It starts with you taking that first step in changing your mindset and also being open to having different conversations and in some respects by reducing that that negative consequence accountability is you're taking some risk but that's what leadership's about it's about taking risks in order to create a high performance culture holding people capable is uh, i think a really really constructive way to look at accountability because I say this very often to my clients is that you don't really need me as much as you think you do. And I, for one moment, I'm going to say, don't, don't fire me though at the moment, but it, because you are, you are so close to cracking the nut. And once you understand how capable you are of doing that, things will change very, very quickly. And the other thing that I, I guess wraps around everything that they talked about today was this idea of this is where we tap into discretionary effort. Now, we hear that a lot, that term a lot in organisations. We want to get to the secret source of discretionary effort. But if we're holding people to account and we are not letting go, we are not creating a trust contract, it is going to be very, very difficult but nigh on impossible to get the best out of your people and allow your people to be the best versions of themselves when they turn up to work. So, have a think about having a look at the book. I think the book is is a brilliant book and common accountability. As the gent said, you can just go to any of your favourite bookstores and you'll find it there. I really, really encourage you to do that and also check out their other book, you know, the book around the 12-week work year. I think, um, again, it's, it's, it's a short read, but it's a really, really practical read. And as uh, Mike said, some people say, yeah, but we know all that and that's great, but the difference between knowing it and executing on it is where the opportunity comes for you. Hey, if you love this one as much as I did, how about rate it five stars and leave us a little review. And if you liked it, share it with your friends. And the last thing I just want to say here before I do my usual sign-off, I just picked something else up. I remember them saying about this idea of when someone says to you, I want you to hold me accountable, it is just a way for them to get you to carry their water for you. So just be conscious when someone says that. Don't wear it as a badge of honour. See it more as a way to give them back that accountability. But giving it back in, I hold you capable, more so than looking at that thing of having negative consequences. So as I always say, as I wrap up, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now. <laughs>